Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without policing and prisons. I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. And we're back with another exciting project that we're hopping in the lab. And we have, of course, with us our partner in decriminalization, Eva Nagal. Eva, what's up? Hey, (laughs) (laughs) Good to see ya. Good Good to to see see you too, too. pal. Who are we hopping in the lab with today? I'm excited. You know, we've got friends in the lab today, which is is cool because we have made friends in the lab, but these are old friends. So we've got homies coming to join us. The homies today are Dina Lewis and Shira Hassan, who is the principal consultant for the Just Practice Collaborative, hometown heroes in Chicago. The Just Practice Collaborative was founded between 2014 and 2015, and it's morphed into many different things. It's a training and mentoring group focused on sustaining a community of practitioners that provide community-based accountability and support structures for all parties involved with incidents and patterns of sexual domestic, relationship, and intimate community violence. This group and practice is a resource and a model for those who want to address violence without reliance on criminal, legal, and traditional social services. Just Practice Collaborative works to create a world where survivors and their communities can feel believed, feel held, and like healing is possible. Thousands of people have been trained in Just Collaborative convenings and workshops. Today, Just Practice Collaborative has a couple of offerings. One that we've promoted on the show a lot, the Help Desk, which is a collaborative project with interrupting criminalization that we'll get into. Just Practice Collaborative also offers thought partnership and has two really great resources on their website, a mixtape, Steps to End Prison and Policing, that has a whole series of training videos for people who are doing TJ 101 and beyond and fumbling towards repair. The book that Damon keeps on his desk as do we all (laughs) Um, for community accountability facilitators and folks stepping up your conflict transformation game. We get real deep into some of the machinations of their work, but also the how and why the limitations and the intentionality with which they do what they do, which I think even if you're not doing specifically the same things that they are, the way that they approach building structure is something that I think will be really useful for everyone. So we'll talk more about it in the peer review, but just wanted to flag that as something to pay attention to. All right, anything else before we hop in the lab? I guess you can find out more about them at just-practice.org and get in tune with those resources that Eva mentioned. All right, y'all. Let's do it. Let's hop in the lab with Shira and Dina. Yeah. I'm brimming over with excitement. (laughs) Big plosive B brimming over with excitement. And I am honored. We have in the lab with us some of the greatest people. We have from Just Practice, Shira Hassan and Dina Lewis. Bra, bra, bra. It is it is part of the the the, the shtick, but it is sincere. I, it it is where I'm at. I am I am high energy for this. I, I'm juiced. Um, <laughs> that was worth the the plosives on the B. That was fantastic. Yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Get it yeah, in post yeah. if you have to. I'm, Let's I'm, go. I'm I'm, I'm, pl- I'm plosiving. <laughs> um, 
So we're gonna we're gonna hop into this thing the way we do. We we like to start with the tradition, and that tradition is centered around a two part question, and that question is rooted in the conception of time. In this time can mean this day, this hour, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? So. At this moment, I wish I could start on a high note. So let me start with a quote from the great philosopher, Christopher Wallace. Quote, (laughs) fuck the world. Don't ask me for shit. Everything you get, you got to work hard for it. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that, you know, October is often hard for me because of just change. I'm in the middle of a grieving process. My body is in pain. My emotional state is also, I'm just in pain. And I'm in pain also for what's happening in the world. And we can talk more about seeing hope and seeing light. And I'm kind of like grasping at it. Like imagine being underwater and you, you're you struggling, but you see the light above you. I was treading water, but now I've sunk, but I still see the light and I'm really swimming for it. And I have community and fam really holding me and pulling me up. And I really thank all the deities for those people. And I'm lucky to have those people really surrounding me and holding me. Yeah. I'm like, struggling a lot um, generally, but specifically also just holding Gaza and all of Palestine in my heart, soul, body, mind, kind of every second. I have a really long-term relationship with a palm reader who I've been seeing since I was like 20, who's this incredible genius who was like, Shira, you are so out of time right now. She didn't mean time had run out. She meant I'm out of my timeline. Like I'm Mm. crossing multiple timelines at once. And I think a lot of us are. And I think grief does this. And I think um, joy does this. I'm in like so many time zones in this linear plane. And then I'm like a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, and a thousand years in the future. And I'm also trying to remember to get my laundry done kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That, that time zone idea is beautiful to think about like the experiencing of multiple realities at the same time and how that lives. And I've never thought about that. This was, we we have much more to discuss, but that was, that was something already making the connections. (laughs) I I, I love it. And and even that, that um, dynamic way of looking at time kind of speaks to, my understanding of the time that just practice has exists. So um, I'm segueing us into origin story, but I love and respect and know so many folks on the team. And I feel like just practice both is always just coming into existence, but has been here forever. And so like, I, I was trying to like, remember <laughs> in my movement history timeline, I usually am very good of like, Oh, this is the month where for the people's artists collective came about. This is the time that BYP, this is the story of, and I just know just practice and y'all as an ecosystem of facilitators have been here, but I cannot pinpoint the time that it started. So I would love to hear the, the, you know, the origin story of, of how this emerged into the world to become what it is now. And and maybe connected to that, it can start with the same uh, starting place for all of these experiments, which is like, what was the hypothesis of just practice as it emerged into the world. I tell you my hypothesis. <gasps> yeah. 
Do you want me to start, Dina? Or yes. Do you... Okay. <laughs> um, so we actually had a really clear hypothesis. I was a part of Young Women's Empowerment Project here in Chicago and had been a part of it since 2003, something like that. We were a project that was led by and for young people of color who had current or former experience trading sex for money for survival, um, being the sex trade, and very importantly, being a part of the street economy, meaning um, drug use, drug sales. That goes back further for me because I I had some of that in my history as a young person. And so we were always trying to figure out how to solve problems without cops because it was impossible to call them. Similarly, without social workers, often without healthcare, because it is so difficult to get help from a system that's actually set up to eliminate you. So we were doing a lot of processes um, and some of them were not actually processes. Some of them were ways of intervening and transforming and responding to violence as violence was playing out in the moment without the use of police or state systems. And simultaneous to that, I was in conversations with Mariam, who was doing similar things. It's just true. And her world, um, which was also with young people. And she was doing it through a variety of different projects, the Rogers Park Peace Room. She was doing it through Young Women's Action Team. And so Mary and I had been already working together for years anyway. At one point, she was on the board of Young Women's Empowerment Project, had done a lot of crosswork. And so at some point, I don't remember when the conversation started, one of us just like confessed, you know, that we were doing this because it was not like a thing. It wasn't a thing that you could say, I'm holding proxies without police. I'm responding. Like you couldn't, like, what did you call that then? Right. And so that was probably like 08, 09. And we started comparing notes and started figuring things out and started screaming on the phone and like calling each other at two in the morning and venting and like, trying to figure that out. Then somewhere around 2012, 2013, two things happened. Um, Mariam decided to move home, you know, move home to New York. And simultaneous to that, we were both seeing like a huge increase in people reaching out to us for help responding to particularly sexual violence. We were like, oh my gosh, we can't be the only people that people are calling. There's got to be more than just us. We just don't know who they are. And so we started like spreading feelers out to try to find people who were getting those calls. Our presumption going into it was there's probably like 30 of us who are getting these calls. We're just not talking about it. But the more we talked to people, the more we realized, no, it's actually a small handful of people who are repeatedly getting them that we can track to. I'm sure there were more, but that's who we could track. And this is where the hypothesis came in really clearly um, was we have got to expand Chicago's capacity to respond to violence without the use of police. That was a part of our abolitionist vision and our political work. It was never paid. It was a political project from the start and remains so. But it was also a part of capacity building, not only for our movement, but also for Mia Mariam. I mean, we had always, I think, struggled. It's always hard to do this work, but I think we were starting to struggle even more. And then with Mariam leaving, it was like, oh shit, like, you know, that that's actually a significant shift in resources 
And so we held a meeting with um, Dina, who's here, Rachel Kaidor, Anna Mercado, and Kisa Reynolds. And we were like, what do we want to build? We um, did something that I really recommend everyone who's starting a group do, which is like we had lots of conversations. We did lots of skill shares. And we very, very carefully decided on what our definition of violence was, but also what was the kinds of violence that we were going to be responding to. And we landed on sexual violence, intimate partner violence, intimate violence more broadly, domestic violence, so that it was like very clear. And we did that for two reasons. One was that was where all of us came from. We all had worked in DV. We had all worked in intimate partner violence. We had all worked in rape crisis, my life and work around sex, work organizing. And so that was where we actually had the most skill together. But then it was also because this is some of the hardest violence to interrupt and transform. And we thought what we come up with to address sexual assault and intimate partner violence will work for things like theft, which are often embedded in a lot of those things anyway, but people calculate them out. But like theft is a huge part of intimate partner violence, for example. And then we asked ourselves, okay, what can we do to try to expand capacity in Chicago so that more people can respond to, intervene on, transform this kind of violence in our community without the use of police and state systems. Um, I can pause because I just talked a minute. In in a time where timelines are crossing, that was a very clear (laughs) timeline. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And so before we pick up there, I want to go back to before the hypothesis you named that there like wasn't even really commonly shared language for what this role that you and Miriam were finding yourself being asked to do. How did you define it? Or like, what was the language you used? Or And what were people coming to you asking for? Like, if there wasn't the language of, I want you to facilitate a process and we know the term, like, what were the words? What were the frameworks that people had? Help. Yeah. It was we can't access the cops, fuck the cops. And there was language around police brutality and there was a language around police misconduct. And there was even language around like ending militarization and those worlds overlapped. But it wasn't until critical resistance and Dr. Angela Davis started like really languaging those things that I started to understand I don't think it had been an articulated framework around abolition until I would say 98, 99. I started, you know, learning more around critical resistance, harm free zones, and insight. So then to sort of like move forward, how were people reaching out? People were reaching out and saying, help, like, help, I'm hurt right now. And they were reaching out to people who were in their networks who they already reached out to for help. Or they were reaching out saying, like, you're not going to believe what just went down. She just called me and told me what happened over here. Can you either come over here or find someone who can come over here? Because we got to get out of here and we can't get out of here. And some of this was even before, like a lot of it, actually. Cell phones have only been a recent part 
of the work for me. So sometimes this was pager codes. Sometimes this was like landline calls. And sometimes it was calls that were happening for one reason that would then morph into something else. So I'm calling because this is a hotline and I need to talk about this immediate thing. But then also, do you know where I can go about this thing? And then, you know, a lot of times for me, people would just show up because there was a physical location where I existed at Young Women's Empowerment Project. Someone would just come by with someone and say like, this is happening right now. We didn't know where else to go. We heard about this place. I want to jump in on, on the way you also named it was from a place of necessity and survival. And because there was such a, a harmful and dehumanizing relationship to the state already established, you just named like police wasn't an option, but was it already explicitly like a politicized anti-carceral abolitionist or were you just practicing it? And did you find that politic from that necessity before this language was commonplace? How did the folks like y'all understand what you were doing? I've been thinking about this a lot as a person who identifies as an abolitionist, like as a core part of my identity, just like I can't leave and will not leave like my race, gender or sexuality behind or like privilege any one or the other. I also feel that way about being an abolitionist. So the projects that we're doing might not be designed as abolitionists, but because that's how we're entering, especially this work, then it is. And I also feel like Just Practice Collaborative came out of a time when, right before what I think of as the big abolitionist boom, when people were saying like, yeah, the police are terrible and I'm trying to identify as this thing called abolitionist or abolish or something, but I'm not really, I don't really know how to go about it. And the work that we do was a way to show people that we're reimagining the communities and we're building the communities. So we're doing abolitionist work. This is abolitionist work. It might be, you know, person by person, but we're doing this work to reduce harm and violence in our communities. And it's just regular people doing it, just us. And that's important that it's us, right? It's not some abstract out there, them. We're trying to liberate us too. And so when we're doing a process or when people are calling to say, or texting or signaling or WhatsApping to say, hey, I really need some help. We're really trying to support people and to just work through this harm that's happened, that we're trying to engage the practices we we talk about, we read about, that you know keep people safe, keep people out of the carceral system, and at the same time, hold those people accountable for the harms that they caused and support them so that they don't cause that harm again. It sounds like the like embodied practice is part of what you're you're naming. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's like we are the ones doing this work, we are doing this to address what we need as a as a communal we and we're not looking to anybody else to have the solutions but also like we are doing this with the politic we embody and bring into it. Is that does that ring true? Yeah. I mean, I talk with Sharon and Rachel all the time, like, God damn it, why do I have to live my ideology? I just don't want to <laughs> do it. I just yeah. want to be a dick. I want to tr- yeah. I want to smack somebody sometimes. I just am so mad. But then I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm trying to reduce harm. I got to talk. I got to use my words. I got to blah, blah, blah. But sometimes I'm just like, gosh, 
darn this ideology I have. <laughs> I like that the gosh darn is the, is the cusses attached yeah. to it, too. You know? <laughs> I, I, I want to actually dig deeper in that. And correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the mission and the structure is to focus primarily in movement and movement adjacent spaces for just practice? Movement only. It might be fair to say movement adjacent just because it's hard to draw that line, but it isn't designed for movement adjacent. It's not designed to like bring people outside of the movement in. It's more like because it's not a easy to draw that line, there's going to be people who aren't necessarily. But what I will say Something that doesn't work with transformative justice and something that does not work with the model that we have been working with, and this isn't a challenge, it's just, I think, a truth, is that if you are not politically and values aligned around abolition, transformative justice is not going to be your thing. So that kind of necessitates that you're in movement to some degree whether or not that means you're an organizer or an activist or whether that you know means you're someone who believes in abolition and works at a bank you know what i mean like that part is like where the line is fuzzier but like in order to do community accountability and live into the philosophy the value as you know saying of abolition is absolutely central to that so part of i think why there's so many people who are like frustrated with transformative justice and frustrated with other things or like it didn't work for this because X. And it's like, well, it was never designed to work for that, A. And B, like if not everyone is values aligned, then this actually isn't a tool that makes them values aligned. This is a tool that was created and structured and designed by and for people who could not safely or at all, reach out to police or state systems to intervene on and transform violence and or we're currently being harmed by it. So yeah, I wanted to jump in to say that community accountability, transformative justice is not a one size fit all situation. Working with and trying to support these folks over here using transformative justice practices and community accountability a lot of those can be found in Shira Hassan and Miriam Kaba's book, Fumbling Towards Repair. Um, burr, burr, burr. Of course. Available now. <laughs> Available where you have the interwebs. <laughs> those tools or any one tool that you might use with these people over here might not work with somebody else. And so that can be frustrating for some folks because they want just a you know, like here's my prepackaged thing that I'm going to put onto a situation and then everything's going to come out beautifully in the end and it's going to take six months and then we'll be good and, you know, so on and, and so forth. And it just doesn't work that way. And that's okay because there's beauty in that too because you're also taking things that are known, you're taking tools that are known, you're working with folks and you're trying things out together. So there's a lot of vulnerability in that. I also want to say that it's not a six-month thing doing this work. It can go for a long period of time. And so you're going to be in it for the long haul. And it's important to understand that and be informed by your capacity at any one time. I was wondering if it would be helpful to like go through the model that we used to try to build some of this out. Would love a model. Okay. Because it was intentional. Let's do it. That is unsurprising. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. So back to time. And I, I've tried to calculate it out. Another uh, part of my life is I run this amazing resource called the Transformative Justice Help Desk that's at Interrupting Criminalization. I started to like write down what we did in part because I wanted to be able to like offer things out in a concrete way. And one of the first things that we did was like map our skill sets and map what we knew, map what trainings we had taken, map what we wanted to know. And we had done so much before we even came into the room together, like from HIV AIDS um, test counseling work to 40-hour trainings through both rape crisis and DV, through volunteering on hotline, through shelter work. We came in um, with a fair amount, mostly volunteer, mostly political, but sometimes paid training. And then we spent a good year skill sharing and swapping the information that we had. And so I remember Anna McCotter doing this really amazing workshop skill sh- during our early days around um, restorative justice. And some of those things were like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what I was doing had a model. And some of it was like, if I had had that, I would have saved myself, you know, so much. Um, that part was really helpful. And I, I, when I wrote it all down, I realized we'd spent a good year doing that. And I think that is something that's important to know as you're building out, if you want to build out something like this, get to know each other, fall in love with each other's skill sets and figure out how to make up for what you don't have either like through outside trainings or skill sharing internally. So that was like the first year. Then we did outward facing stuff. Which is so interesting. I think a lot of times groups aspire to meet a need. And the lesson I'm hearing is there's there's an infinite amount of things that need to and could be done, but really emphasize. And instead of a, doing a needs assessment, doing a what we have assessment, a skill assessment, and then building from there, which I think is, is a very valuable lesson. Yeah. And it, we didn't even, I think, think of it as assessment, but it really was. It was an assessment and skill up phase. And really like what it was, was deep relationship building um, and learning each other's learning styles, learning each other's teaching styles, learning each other's thinking styles. Like I can anticipate what some of people in just practice will say. I sent a text this morning on our thread and I knew I still needed to hear it but I knew. And so, you know, cause it's been so long. So the next phase um, was outward facing and this phase we did for a good five years. Cause remember our purpose was to increase Chicago's capacity to respond to violence without the use of police and state systems and particularly intimate partner violence and sexual violence. So we did an outward facing training calendar that we pulled in so many people because we knew people from like so many different parts of Chicago who were responding to and transforming violence in so many creative and ingenious ways. And so we had Stacey Ehrenberg and Tanisha Jagernath do something on decolonizing healing, on the history of healing justice and the practice of healing justice. I remember um, Benji Hart did an amazing training on voguing as violence prevention. And Dina did something incredible on carceral feminism, which, you know, people rarely like talked about those words at that point. And it was like so important that people begin to understand 
how feminism was carceral and how that affected us. I was always doing stuff on sex work. Mariam used to do this one, speaking to your earlier point around what did we call it if we didn't call it abolition. The workshop she ran repeatedly was, I don't want to call the police. That was the title. And so we did like a series of that. We hosted them in an accessible space that was free. We offered like a sliding scale range and all that money either went to the facilitator and then we dug into our own pockets because this was our political project for snacks. And at the end, it all like usually added up to cover what we needed for the space cost. So it was like self-sustaining. And then we realized that people were coming from Canada, people are coming from Wisconsin, people are coming from California, from Arizona, from Washington State, which was never our intention. You know, it was this was a Chicago-based project. And you know, I haven't counted in a while, but the last time I counted, it was well over 3,000 people who had come through in those first five years. So then that brought us to the next phase because at that point, we were also still documenting, practicing, documenting, practicing because a big part of what we wanted to figure out was how do we teach this shit? Like, how do we explain and describe what we've all been doing? The other sort of, I guess, parallel purpose was for us to start swapping with each other and partnering with each other to respond to processes as they came up. So um, Mariam and I were off in a pair, Dina and Rachel were off in a pair, and um, Anna and Kisa were off in a pair, and then we would also swap. So it had this like internal external piece where we were teaching skills out, but then internally we were also trying to like do peer support and like, again, like swap skill sets with each other around like how we could um, continue to build our own practices internally. So after we had done all of that writing and, and we realized okay, now we need a two-day intensive. Then we went to a three-day intensive. Get more intense. Yeah. Get more and more intense. <laughs> yes. Then we did something we called a non-ference, right? And the, the non-ference was like for like 80 people who had come like through most of just practice offerings at that point who were already doing community accountability work and process facilitation and then wanted a deeper place to dig in. We um, released Fumbling, which so much of that was based on the work that Mariam and I were doing prior to Just Practice, but it got refined and we got to practice it again. And then we got to practice how to communicate what we were doing. And then we got to practice how to teach it and evaluate it. And then it got written down into Fumbling. And then we started using Fumbling to try to do more trainings and evaluate fumbling and figure out what was missing from fumbling and add to that. All right. We need to, we need to take a moment right here. So in the ergo respair world, we are big proponents of gas, gassing people up. So, I, you know, affirmation as, as others may say, I say gassing up. Oh my God, this is not on purpose. It is literally right here. Nice. <laughs> I swear. Dame, what do you got for there for the listeners at I, home? For those who, who are just listening to this, I have a copy of Fumbling Through Repair right here on our little printer scanner thing. And I did not plan that. But we, yeah, we, we, love, uh, we love props and uh, <laughs> props stunts for, on this show. For, for a non-visual medium. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. We're hustling backwards here. Yeah. Talk about but, fumbling. <laughs> <laughs> but what Fumbling Towards Repair 
has been for our world and our community is such a gift and such an offering. I can't count the amount of times where folks are wanting to learn or wanting to respond, where all that history you named of it being abstract or informal or not codified, that more than anything else, this is the resource I see people turn to actually, and even more than people who actually crack the pages and like engage it, just like as a, a totem of like this exists in the world, even in the show, we, uh, Daniel brought up the hypothesis. Our kind of joke is that we fumble through this extended science metaphor because we both didn't pay attention to science class as liberal arts students. Um, and just th this notion of fumbling as a, as a meme almost for the way in which struggle builds practice and builds capacity um, and that it will never be perfect. The impact that that has had on our spaces uh, is beyond the words that I can bring right now. So I just want to thank you so much for this, this amazing gift that you've given to so many people. That's amazing. I can't hear that without also naming what fumbling was about, which was the creative interventions toolkit. Like we couldn't have written fumbling without creative interventions toolkit. Which I've downloaded and is much longer, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> but the reality is, is it's longer because it has so much more like important detail and practice information. And this was always designed to be a companion. To that, mm. so those of you who are excited to pick up fumbling, you you really need to pick up fumbling along with creative interventions. And this is something we imagined in your backpack as you were like holding a process, you know, because it's true the creative interventions toolkit doesn't quite fit into your backpack, but there is a condensed version. <laughs> Carry on, yeah. The, the green one does. Yeah, the workbook. The green one, the workbook, yeah. yeah. I have I have the PDF on my desktop, but that doesn't, that's not as exciting of like, oh, look, it's physical right here. So shout out also to the Creative <laughs> yeah. Intervention Toolkit. Yeah, because um, I mean, without, without the Creative Interventions Toolkit, I don't know where any of us would be, so... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Here's what I, I want to go to. So as we said, this is not one size fit all for the whole society. This is really for aligned uh, value centered movement spaces that are grounded or at least aspiring towards principles of abolition. And that's an important lesson for us to take. But also the language has now become much more popular and can sometimes be used in a one size fit all that I think one provides some opportunities, but I think also there are some serious limitations to the language, the frameworks, the mechanisms of how we respond to DV and SA and intimate violence um, being used for all types of social harm, whether it's interpersonal, or whether conflict, it's yeah. power struggles, whether it's someone said something that hurt my feelings and now I don't feel as comfortable in a space or did not care for me in the way that I needed, that is being named as harm, often appropriately, uh, but then responded to with, I think, a lot of the mechanisms of... DV and intermittent violence. Um, and also, I think the language of harm and abuse and gaslight gets used to talk about structural dynamics and structural relationships, which I think also is appropriate, but is also different. So I just want to, for y'all, the, there is a way in which I think restorative language, transformative language, harm-centered concepts get used beyond these specific transformative processes and what opportunities does that give us and what are like the limitations or concerns you've seen of how that comes up in spaces? I'm not starting Shira. So <laughs> Damn, okay. that was, that was a little, a little stare off there. That was, I know. Out. Okay. What I think is the opportunity in the language being out there is that there is so much 
cultural transformation that has happened even just in the last 20 years. And some of that has undoubtedly been through the use and creation and stewardship of such precious language. I love that that means too, that the cultural shift that we're experiencing, and I'm actually quoting um, Rachel Kaidor, who's a Just Practice member, from the intro to the archival podcast that we'll release. And one of the observations that she had was that like, what's so amazing is that this shift in culture that we've had, especially over the last 10 years, but absolutely seismically over the last 20, you can really see in evidence by the language that people use has been a cultural shift that's happened because of femmes and trans people and women of color who created a strategy to transform our movement culture. What I love is that the language is evidence of that transformation in a way that's like very trackable because you can hear people ask for a process now in a way that 5, 10, 15, and especially not 20, no one would have known what you were talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love it for that. Especially in the last three years, what we've seen as sort of like the larger mainstream world outside of movement has gotten a hold of our language, has been the flattening of it and the erasure of the nuance in what it means and the misapplication of what it means. And I think the exciting thing is that people are newly politicized but then they're newly politicized into language that's like actually quite purposeful and nuanced. So it, it it feels a little bit like people don't learn math. They learn like quantum physics, right? And they're like, quantum physics is so cool. And I'm kind of like this because I suck at math, but I'm like obsessed with all sorts of quantum science. But I also know that the minute I actually try to understand what some things mean, I am lost and I have no business trying to go to space. I mean, fine. Just call us out for our extended science metaphor for this show. You know, yes, we are not good at science. You get it. We get it, Sarah. Okay. But to continue it, we are personal scientists. And what I love about transformative justice work and what I love about our movement is how devoted we are to being personal scientists and any drug user is an amazing personal scientist. You have to your body tells you exactly when it needs critical life-saving new juice to keep moving. Your body tells you when it's coming down. We are incredible personal scientists. And I'm speaking like this in this way because drug users and sex workers are such a big part of how transformative justice, prison abolition, and all of this work came to be. And so we do actually know how to be personal scientists in our movement. And I, that's part of what I love about the One Million Experiments frame is the experiment as truth. We are doing experiments right now. So what I want to invite us into is like when we don't know what words mean to really do the work to figure it out before we try what we think is the principle behind that work or else like the egg won't stand up on the equinox or whatever. It's not <laughs> supposed to stand up on the equinox. It's supposed to stand up on something else. Yeah, I can't remember. 
equator. I'm always dropping eggs Close. at the wrong time. So oh, what a mess. Wow. But but maybe but maybe this is an opportunity for one of those interventions or an opportunity to to help people do that work. Are there particular uses without that nuance that, you know, as people who have been hands-on building this language, this is an opportunity to help people see a little bit more more nuance behind words that you see get thrown around in Instagram captions. Um, so I really encourage people to learn the lineages of the movements that they're stepping into. And I don't mean like just read Marx. A lot of the people that Shira is speaking about, so queer folks of color, trans folks of color, sex workers, folks in the street economy, didn't necessarily write down or document the work that they were doing to keep the community safe. They were doing the work and not necessarily documenting it. Right now, we're living in a time where we have so much, not only documents, but books to videos to short videos of people really documenting these different lineages. And I'm going to do a shameless promotion of the homie Shira. Shira wrote a book called Saving Our Own Lives, A Liberatory Practice of Harm Reduction. Now, people talk about harm reduction often now, but people are not necessarily using harm reduction in the way that Shira writes about it as a liberatory practice. And that is what harm reduction started as in those same communities that Shira has been talking about. So we also, and Shira kind of mentioned this, intersectionality. People talk about intersectionality all of the time. And that concept has been around for a long time. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Combahee River Collective. Now, in their statement, they didn't say intersectionality, but they discussed the concept of intersectionality. And I will also say that's a, a must read. And Damon, you mentioned, you know, harm. And we also have to understand that there is a difference between harm and discomfort. We have to learn how to be in conflict with each other without harming each other. And that's going to be uncomfortable because we want to not be in conflict. We want everything to go smoothly in our groups. We want everything to be puppies and rainbows all of the time. And we're all fighting together and we're protesting and we're locked arms and we're super happy. And we go home at the end of the day and we've done such a great job. But in our organizations, and this is something that, you know, another part of what Just Practice wants to do is we want people to build up that muscle of dealing with discomfort within their groups so that a schism doesn't happen, which then could turn into harm. It's okay to disagree with each other and still love each other. It's okay to be mad at each other as long as you're working through it and you're not trying to harm each other in that anger. That goes back to our our science metaphor. We have one million experiments. Not all one million experiments have succeeded or always succeed. And that's the point of science. <laughs> I'm not a scientist, but like, it's okay to <laughs> fail. It's okay for, to make mistakes because if we don't make mistakes, if we don't fail, then we're not going to learn and then we're not going to change for the better. Yeah. <sighs> what you just said, Dina, reminds me of um, the learning principles that we share. And we've been using these values that are written down in fumbling 
but that I think are really important. And what you just said reminds me of that, which is that this learning space is generous and generative. This learning space honors mistakes. We believe curiosity and judgment cannot coexist. We answer judgment with curiosity, with a question. Take care of yourself and take care of the group. It just really reminded me when you were talking of how important it is to also be like values guided, not just like values aligned, but like guided by your values as you go. So I'm hearing so much about the types of learning and like relationship building and the way we position ourselves to our values that just practice has embodied. And I want to talk a little bit about the trajectory I've personally experienced in like actual response, you know, at the intersection of skills, building, capacity, and boundary, I'll say. And I'm I'm sure y'all as one an organization collectively, but also as singular practitioners have experienced of, you know, we are approaching a, a for me a decade of this work for y'all, 20 years of this work. Um and <laughs> wow. Damn. I'm sorry. The I, I to say Could you edit funny. that out, please? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I will. <laughs> time is so is so weird because I was saying it as a point of like humility. No, fuck a timeline. We're already yeah, moving yeah, yeah, across yeah. timelines. We've been Don't we've been doing this across timelines <laughs> with different so with varied levels of experience. So even like like very recently, have been called to respond, and I was moved. Shira, earlier you said there's this sense that you had at first that there's a lot of people who are getting these calls, but that's actually not true. That it is actually like a a, a concentration of folks who are getting those calls. And so personally, right, like I've been through workshops, I've looked at some of the books, I watched the videos and the webinars. I feel in these moments, like I have instinct that I can respond with and that I do have more skills and experience than like 90 to 95% of other people who I'm interacting with, but still feel very much unqualified for each and every instance that has come my way. Still feel like there is like a margin of error or vulnerability of like this can go left and become more harmful or I could be putting myself at risk. And there's not like a, I don't have like a support. A, a formal support team to come back to to like debrief these things. I've the learnings that I have. I can't write them down and say here are the ten things I've learned. They only come back up when something triggers it in real time, um, and that doesn't feel like a very like codified way to like transfer knowledge or to expand our collective capacity. So I know y'all as an organization is just practice. When things come up, just practice. I've heard come up of like, oh, we don't know what the fuck to do. Let's reach out to to just practice and see what we can get. And so one, as an organization, how do you navigate that? Is there boundaries that need to be set? Is is there capacity that that needs to be consistently assessed? And then y'all as people who I'm sure have gotten exponentially more calls than I have, how do you manage going through? You never know what you don't know. And there's always this risk involved that you do have to balance against this notion of we are responsible for each other or that we are each other's business. Like those things don't always coexist in a very clean and neat way. So, so personally and collectively that relationship to boundary versus responsibility that comes in real time when shit's hitting the fan a lot of time. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? I love that you keep asking me that, but I want you to start. (laughs) Okay. 
I knew that, but <laughs> I, know. I wanted to ask. <laughs> I want to start with like part of what we would say at the beginning of every workshop and at the beginning of every training is that this is called just practice because we need spaces to just practice. And not only that, the more we practice, the more justice we believe we will have access to in um, fumbling. Uh, it's just written as try shit. We have to have the assumption. I have never been a part of a process. I've never been a part of a training. I've never been a part of an organization. I've never been a part of a relationship where there wasn't fuck ups and there wasn't mistakes made. And the best version of those have mechanisms for repair built in, like you know how to apologize to your person you know how to make it right with people in your organization. There's an accountability mechanism, hopefully. If not, you know, like how do you build that? If there's one thing I know, it's how do you fuck up? It's funny that like people would think that I know how to do it right. What I really know is how to fuck up. The great thing about that is I'm less afraid of fucking up because I really do know what it means to fuck up and I'm more afraid of not trying. It doesn't mean I'm not exhausted, though. When I talked to Rachel Kider to ask her if there was anything that she wanted to make sure was included today, what you named was actually exactly what she said was like, how do we bridge this gap between the number of trainings, the number of things we've written down, and the reality that crossing the gap into practice still feels really wide for some folks. And so I do think we have a bismillion more practitioners than we did when we started 10, 12 years ago, a bismillion. And that's not all to our credit. There's so many people doing this work. It's not all us at all, but I know that we did have an impact on that. And I know that we had an impact on the language changing and all those things. But to Rachel's point and to your point, I have that same question. Like, how do we close that gap for people around practice, training, information, support? And that like, I feel like it's this knee-jerk feeling of I'm not the expert, therefore I must outsource this. There's some coupling there that I do think is like something that like Paolo would say about the cop in the heart. Um, you could link that amazing article. Like I do think there's an embodiment around outsourcing our problems that is very hard to recondition ourselves to do. And I think also, you know, you don't always have to be the person who holds a process. Like I am definitely at a stage of life now. And I think this is partially towards your capacity question where, yeah, I'm not in the best place um, to hold process right now for a number of reasons. And so that has to be okay, right? And there's other ways that I can support. And some of the ways that I can support is through supporting others who are holding process or holding other kinds of roles around violence, um, which I do. I hold like a lot of roles around lots of different violence and harm that's playing out. But I, I have to know that I'm not going to be the lead right now. Do you, do you feel, sorry to interrupt, without going into detail, do you feel comfortable naming some of those roles? Because there may be people listening who are holding those roles and didn't acknowledge that as part of yeah. what they're doing. I think like you can um, absolutely be a supporter to someone who's holding a process. So you can hold that person down. That person can count you on their team as someone who they call when they need thought partnership. You can also support people who are involved in a process. So let's say a survivor comes to you or a person who causes harm 
or anyone in between. Um, you can be a friend or an ally or an accompany that person through the stages of a process. It's also important to think about how are you a resource towards ending violence? I'm imagining the pod mapping worksheet that um, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective put out years ago, which I'm sure you can link. But the outer circles are for resources. So like if you name a bookstore as a resource, right, because you know that's a safe place you can go, it's your home spot, and also there's tons of amazing articles in that spot or Maybe even a martial arts um, place is something you want to pull into your life as a resource. And I think it's interesting to think about how we can be those resources. We can intervene on violence more broadly, too. So, for example, like the incredible people, and I, I believe you had them on who did the Love Fridge. That's such an incredible intervention on transforming violence. Not to underestimate the millions of factors that go into transforming violence in our culture that aren't always about a process, you know? Mm -hmm. I also want to jump in to say part, some of those roles are, are especially intervening on violence is supporting the person who caused harm. And again, it's a long haul situation. And thinking about the Bay Area transformative justice pod mapping and the way those pods go out, maybe you're not the person who is directly holding space for the person who caused harm, but you might be holding space for the person who is. Um, and another thing about the pod mapping, which I think everybody in an organization, grassroots collective, whatever you want to call it, I think everyone should do this. There might be different maps depending on your location. So if I'm a person who's been harmed, then I might have a different map than if I'm a person who has caused harm in this particular situation, which is also to say that we all have the ability and have caused harm. We need to understand that too as we go into a process or when we start thinking about violence um, and ending violence or uh, transforming, um, transforming violence. There's two things I want to add to what Dina just named too that got me thinking. One is like, I remember hearing two different things from two different people who were supporting processes who were not a part of them. One of them was just cooking food and they were cooking food for all the people who were facilitating, but they were also, whenever there was a meetup, bringing food. And another did a fundraiser for uh, grocery cards. It wasn't the whole length of the process because the process was longer, but you know they'd probably raised quite a bit of money for people to get groceries covered during the process. I've also heard of people helping raise money for therapy. There's a lot of different ways to plug into the repair part. And then, dang it, there was something else. Oh, mistakes. I always assume that mistakes are going to happen in a process. What I will always say to people whenever I do a process is I'm going to make mistakes. There is no such thing as a process that doesn't have a mistake in it. It will happen. And so what I want to know is when I make a mistake, if I catch it, here's how I have responded in the past. How does that feel to you? If you catch it, what do you want to do? I try to really make sure that's written down in advance so that we both know that mistakes are going to happen. And we also know that like repairing the mistakes and keep going is a part of what's my commitment and priority to an action plan. Can I jump in on the gap between training and practice? Cause something just struck me. I feel like in this 
timeline that we're in, we're living in a kind of certification industrial complex. If you get a certificate that's signed by someone who was the facilitator slash expert, then you are like, okay, I now know and can go out and do. But that's not true necessarily, or it could be true. But really, if you are a person who is in movement, you have so many skills, even if you're And for the people who are not in movement and doing work, you too also have skills, but I'm being specific here, that if you went to a just practice training, you didn't get a certificate, but you have the skills. You decided to come, that's given you a skill right there. And to go out and try and to lean on your community to help you in that trying so that you don't need this certification to make you the expert or who can do this work. That's so real. It's it's funny that you say that as you as you name it. I just realize how much humans are just like these symbol-driven primates. Like <laughs> once you put it on a little piece of paper, we feel so much more confident, so much more excited. Even if it was just like you clicked a couple bubbles on the screen and then press print. But once you got the certificate, it's like Can I give you a perfect example? Uh-huh. Here's a perfect So I got married last week. Our good friend, a brilliant movement worker artist married us. They were going to do the same thing regardless, but they had to fill out the little 30-second little officiant certification. For whom? For whom was the universal life church involved in our wedding, you know? Um, You're talking to a reverend right now, so... <laughs> Me too. The question. I, got my, my, I have my universal life. You're certified. Yeah, this I'm podcast certified. is not sponsored. Yeah. No. But shout out to the officiants yeah. out here. I think I'm American yeah. Marriage Industries or something like that. That sounds so so I know. But what I think also, Damon, what you're talking about is like, it's not just, it's not inherent in us. It's how capitalism has changed us to believe that in order to do something, we need some sort of proof from some governing body permission and permission that, that says, oh, you have this. So now you are able to do this. For sure. I have, I have one more big question that I want to make sure that that I feel like y'all are the people to ask this question to. And I think it pertains to a lot of what we've talked about. So you've been very explicit about who this formation of just practice is for, right? And who these processes are, like the shared values alignment there. And so that means that for many of the people who are going through that, they are both dealing with what has happened interpersonally in an intimate relationship and the harm there. And then also the way that their affiliations and participations in movement spaces are impacted or overlap with that. So maybe that means their partner is also part of the campaign or the formation that they're part of. Um, Maybe that means that information about the harm is impacting organizing that has nothing to do with that harm directly. You know, the uh, a food distribution, all of a sudden there's tension in the room planning because people know that this harm occurred for good reason. Um, And so... I'm wondering how y'all think about process serving those two components. There's the addressing the needs, the healing, the processing of the people who are involved in the harm. And then there's the way that that's impacting the movement work that's happening around it. And sometimes I feel like those needs would line up and sometimes they wouldn't. And so I'm wondering how you think about that very specific relationship, because I think we've seen the disruption on a movement end that intimate partner violence and sexual violence causes. And and I think sometimes 
as students of movement, we focus on that as opposed to like, well, maybe that disruption is not the priority over like addressing the needs of the person who was harmed. I forgot. What do you do? Like this? This? There's no's going happening for those. <laughs> yeah. Shira's going to go first. For those keeping score at home. <laughs> I really thought you were going to go first. I thought okay. I was too, but uh, I know. That's layered. It's a couple of reasons why it's layered. One is we aren't necessarily like organizational development facilitators. Like our arena has mostly been between people who are directly experiencing the harm. And you're right in that like in movement, that's a false silo in that like the ripple effects of that play out in organizations all the time in just practice our area would be more direct with the people who are experiencing the harm directly. That said, I do think there's this really difficult part with like transparency around transformation where like the reality of this kind of healing and transformation is that it is so deeply vulnerable and takes years Right. And I think people want a process to be fast. Even if something can be done on a shorter term, the healing and the transformation is very long term work. And often a process follows that transformation timeline more than any other. And so organizations, I really feel, shouldn't really be the one to be holding those processes because. Capacity-wise, that's so impossible on a number of levels, both, I mean, financial, but also like how it affects the work inside the organization, the inside-outside transparency. If it's a nonprofit, then it has all kinds of employment issues. I've really spent a lot of time like really discouraging people from holding process, especially inside organizations. And I still feel that way, but I do feel like something often needs to be done for people who are experiencing like the vicarious impact. And vicarious trauma is very real. I mean, it is a trauma in and of itself, and I think it gets diminished a lot. So I do want to make room for the witnessing of trauma as a trauma in and of itself, And I do think we need more and more solutions, ideas, circles, strategies for how to hold people as they move through, like transforming that part of the experience of violence, especially because of how triggering and layered it is. I would also say that even though the organization should not hold the actual process, like be the facilitators of that the organization collective, et cetera, should have ideas about what they'll do when harm occurs. So where are they going to go to help folks work through this harm, work through this violence, this trauma that they've experienced? So it's not as though they're off the hook, like, oh, we can't do anything. It's that the building of your organization, the value setting that you're doing needs to include, okay, harm is more than likely going to occur. How are we going to find ways for others to help us address it? I think that's really helpful for listeners who are building their own formations that like you you shouldn't 
necessarily be the ones leading the process, but you should be the ones guiding people toward helping to make sure that like that structure exists. Aorta, um, shout out to Aorta in Philly has a great tool on like, as you are building your formation, but you could even do it mid midway. Um, it's like a tool that you use to like track how you want to be spoken to and addressed if harm happens. We can leave a link um, so people can start incorporating those kinds of resources from the beginning of their formation. But I really like what Dino was saying about how important it is to just assume that there's going to be a problem, harm, disagreement. And I I just want to point out that it's not a negative thing to believe that harm is going to happen because what we're trying to do, again, about building muscles is we want people to be able to respond to and address harm when it occurs in their communities and then reduce the harm moving forward so that we don't have even more harm happening. I know you. we probably have been talking so long. One thing I just want to say, I was saying this every day for the last six months or something, is that like the work is hard work, but because it's hard doesn't mean that it was bad. Like even if the outcome is that people decide to move on or like Dina was referring to like schisms happen And that's also okay. We often think that because a meeting was hard or because the circle was hard or the outcome was different than we expect or people moved on or self-selected to do something else, that it means we failed. And I want to just like explode this like success, failure binary, or even the idea, yes, (laughs) even the idea that something should be easy. And if something is easy, it's right. And if something is hard, it's bad. Um, you got me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till you hear what I do yeah. in post with that explosion too. That's going to be incredible. Not in post. <laughs> That's one of my favorite sayings. I'll, we'll get that in post. It doesn't work for processes, but it works for production. Um, <laughs> all right. Before we get out of here, how can folks connect with the work of just practice? What do they need to know? And if they're interested in building a similar structure where they are, like, what do you want them to, to know as they step into this work? I know those are two different questions. Yeah. Let me start with, (laughs) can we start with what we want people to know? Sure. Yes. Are you wanting me to start, Dina? No. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. What I want people to know about building these formations or trying your own projects and experiments is that this work is deeply relational. And if we are building deeply relational work, it will be hard and it will be hard for the right reasons. Because if our work wasn't deeply relational, we would not be able to transform the kind of violence that we are working to transform. We're talking about transforming epic structural violence. We're talking about transforming experiences of interpersonal violence in the framework of racial capitalism and extreme militarized state this work has to be deeply relational and long-term for us to be able to transform it. And one of my favorite things about Just Practice that I know 1,000% is replicatable is the intentional way that we have maintained our relationship, whether that's like through our daily text thread or whether that's by making sure that we prioritize each other and us as whole people as a part of our work. 
the relational aspect of transforming violence is perhaps, I think, one of the most important layers of this work. And I, I am so thrilled that that wound up to be true through our exploration over the last two years that we've been doing and archiving so much of the early work because it is 1000% replicatable. Relationship building is something we do know how to do and we heal in relationship in part because we experience harm in relationship. And so those two things have to kind of coexist and we can keep it complicated together. I know we can. I love that. You know, there's that old kiss, um, keep it simple, stupid. We can go from kiss to kick, keep it complicated, kids. Oh. <laughs> oh. I love it and oh. feel mad that I didn't come up with it. Damn it. Yeah. yeah we no, got to kick up it. with it, you yeah, know. Yeah, we did. We're kicking it. We're kicking it together. That's so funny. Oh, yes. Oh, snap. I love that. <laughs> Dina, did you want to add to how folks can connect to the work or to that thread of of what is replicable? Yes. So I mentioned earlier about being in study and not in a like uh, punitive way, but to love to learn and learn in the ways that work for you. There's no one right way to learn. You know, I shouted out Shira's book, Saving Our Own Lives. I also want to shout out some other books such as Healing Justice Lineages by Kara Page and Erica Woodland, who write about the lineages of healing justice and how it goes beyond the past 10 years and goes way back. Books like Let This Radicalize You and Practicing New Worlds are also wonderful histories, lineages, just a way to understand and uh, learn more about movement work and, and the things that people are doing to resist. Perfect. Thank you for those resources, but I want to thank you again. But Shira, thank you again for all that you've contributed. Dina, you are one of the the best spirits that I interact in the spaces that we convene. So even when it's heavy, even when it's when it's dense, there is a light and a vibrance that you bring and you named hold, you know, you named being underwater coming into this conversation and you're swimming to the light, but you brought still so much light here. Um, and I want to shout out and thank the rest of the team who is filled of people that have supported work that I've seen directly in real time. So Rachel Kaidor, Anna McCardo, who y'all named a lot, um, Kisa Reynolds, and obviously Miriam Kaba. What y'all as a collective have contributed and offered to our world, to our people, is really immeasurable. There are the big ways that come in PDFs and in glossy text and in conferences, uh, but I've witnessed just a glimpse of the ways that are never going to be documented and actually can't be talked about, um, and I know the way that y'all show up. And so I'm really grateful and honored to be walking through these paths with y'all, and and yeah, thank you so much eternally. Yeah, thank you for having that. This was this was great. First, I want to say thanks to Shira for always going first and me putting her on the spot. But I also she knows that I love her and that I was probably going to do that anyway. <laughs> and thanks, uh, Damon and Daniel, for having us. This was amazing, and I'm glad that you were open to hearing us and engaging with us and making all this shit happen. <laughs> Whew. 
Shout out to Shira and Dina for getting in the weeds with us, going deep. What a great conversation. And as always, it is time to welcome our pal Eva back in for the peer review. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Eva, hello. Hi, y'all. Woo. <laughs> the homies brought the heat. They did. What's, uh, what's jumping out to you from this conversation? If I'm being totally honest with you, the thing that jumps out when Dina and Shira were talking about try shit, in my neighborhood, there's this skate park and there's this like kind of famous, like probably a pretty famous skater called Fuck Shit. I, so I kept thinking of this like character, this identity as the try shit. You know, like if you were a skater or you're an organizer, you're try shit. Like what a sweet, dope nickname that would be. Um, yeah. I could see the t-shirts. Yeah. Right? Try shit. Um, you know, I think that Just Practice Collaborative is just like such a good example of need to do shit, need to try shit and shit happening. Um, and then, you know, here we are almost a decade later and what that what that shit has transformed into. We often think about what crossing the gap into practice really feels like. And in this in this session, you know, Sharon Dina talked about how wide that gap can feel. But I thought that what it kept bringing back to me and what, you know, this podcast like relentlessly brings me back to is is the building relationships aspect of it. I mean, just the hilarity of being in the studio with Dina and Shira together to see that bond, to experience it, to know that that is the building block of this work. There was this quote, um, we heal in relationship because we experience harm in relationship. And, you know, I think we were kind of talking about why this isn't a one size fits all thing, why this TJ thing is a community thing. But that really, that really spoke to me that, these relationships that we see in Just Practice Collaborative, that they're helping people fine-tune all over the, the country and the world, like are what it always comes back to. And there are so many people out there who I think have the seeds of, you know, not just practice and collaborative in particular, but of these like relationships that are the building blocks of these kinds of organizations. You're 100% right that these seeds have spread so far and have really pollinated and Am I using pollinator right? <laughs> no. Yeah. Pollinator is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's you, science. The seeds have spread so far, and there's been this this grand pollination process. Um, and we kind of in the conversation talk about how the the lexicon or how the discourse has changed over this last decade or so. And yeah, I know them. I know the work, and I know how important it is. But being in the conversation, I just felt overwhelming sense of gratitude. So one, you know, have dedicated so much of our work and our life to this notion of abolition. And I realize now that if I didn't have an articulation of what restorative and transformative processes need to look like, I don't know if I would be able to stand an abolition as strongly as I do. Like It would just be, I don't like the cops and I don't like prisons. Um, but to have this um, notion of what the new presence looks like, if I trace it back, it is as much from this community as we could credit any space, that it is from this community as much as any space that these ideas have been able to um, transmit into like my day-to-day life. And beyond even ideologically and feeling more grounded in what we're talking about the world to look like on a macro level, personally, like 
if it wasn't for this example, if it wasn't for this mandate of how do we take more responsibility for our people, we can say things like we are each other's business or, you know, you have to take care of folks or we need to show up for each other. But the notion of a process or the notion of intervention being like real tangible things to participate in and that you have a responsibility to have transformed for me what it means practically to be in community. I think sometimes we can just say that word and it means we go to the same venues when an event happens. Um, and what Just Practice has really given folks the the skills for, or at least the the compass towards, is the way in which you have to show up when shit gets real. Yeah, I completely agree. Like Even if we don't fully understand how to do it all the time, the concept that there is a structure that you can step into that anyone can have a hand in and that we need more people to participate in actually and get trained to help facilitate, I think is a really important contribution while still knowing, like they said, like this is not perfect for every situation. Everyone involved needs to have like a shared politicized framework, which I thought was also kind of new to me to hear, like in this process of responding to the question of what are the alternatives, quote unquote, to policing, like often TJ process gets thrown out there as an answer to that. And I think kind of no one is fully satisfied with that answer, including TJ practitioners, because people who have done this work know that like this is not applicable for everybody. The type of consent needed to move through a multi-year transformative justice process like is not going to work in every situation, especially when people are not coming in with the same like informed consent really about what that looks like. So that was kind of new to me to hear people who who do this work and who have been leading this work say like, hey, where we know this can be helpful is for people who are in movement with a shared politic, which like, is honestly a little like disappointing at first to hear because you want to be able to lift this up politically more actively. But I think the more honest we are about what this experiment can serve, the better of an option it is when people need it. That's so true. And I think I really appreciate how, you know, how honest and real Dina and Shira always are about that. And and when they talk about transformative justice, what it is and what it isn't, and, you know, what the possibilities on the ground now are versus the possibilities in the future. But I think like what we found on this podcast is try shit isn't that different from fuck shit. Just really hitting home the experimental nature of like, you know, what we're trying to do to to survive in community and you know, like how hard isn't bad, easy isn't right. I mean, I think, you know, not only politically, but it's a lot of fucking work. You know, it's not just one size fits all. It's not just a one-to-one replacement to calling police. Oh, and you have to infuse TJ into every facet of your life and be a decent human being and learn great communication skills and also have access to it. You know, like it's like, it's like, you know, what we're building is is pretty large. And I hope that that can be exciting. <laughs> Which makes sense. Because the need is large, you yeah. know, like yeah. compared to the to the violence that folks are experiencing and suffering through, it should not be a easy like one two three thing. And now it's we're perfectly equipped. Like it, that would be underselling the need that our community has, the need of survivors, the need of women, femme, non-binary, and trans people, and those who are marginalized in the sex work economy. Right? Like if it was just you know click some multiple choice bubbles on a website and get your little certificate, right? Like 
we would have fixed that problem a long time ago if that's all it took. But these tensions, these violences that people perpetuate and experience are so deep-rooted, are so generational, are, are so socially embedded in just how our whole life is organized um, that it's going to take generations of this work. It's going to take a, a long time for us to figure out how to, you know, we can't have one shoe. We got to make like a million shoes, like <laughs> just the production of that, you know, the scale of, we don't have factories yet to build all the shoes, but we have to know the model and how to get there. And I thought that metaphor was going to go much cleaner as a former sneakerhead, but <laughs> like, y'all get really, Dan, Dan's really just advocating for manufacturing that's, on mass yeah, scale. That's not, what, that's not what I was really... trying to say, but I used to study like limited size runs on shoes and shit. But yeah, you get where I'm going. Of course you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your skater reference, my, my sneakerhead reference. There you go. I'll throw our baseball reference in yeah. there and we'll really make it strong yeah as, as Derek Jeter once said yeah see there you go <laughs> um, any last thoughts before we uh, hop on out of here I mean I'm gonna hold up the tagline one more time I told Dame I was gonna do this we can keep it complicated together like you know I think we owe Shira and Dina a t-shirt yeah, yeah, yeah. for that yep keep it complicated kids keep it complicated kids I love it. <laughs> y'all I mean it's good it is the messaging that the kids need um go kick it here's one more is we do it every day it's hard it's a big thing to build but we are building it every day by building community and relationships it's it's a cooperative factory just for the record okay thank you yeah Yeah. worker owned yeah Uh yes the shoes they make are participant driven sustainable leather everyone decides together what the production scale is going to be what yeah yeah Mm -hmm. how many hours we're doing Uh (laughs) (laughs) wages are capped and higher Uh non-hierarchical and yeah no absolutely (laughs) Uh, and the shoes are fly too they're really nice shoes the shoes are fly that's the thing is the shoes are fly they're customized they're made to fit you you know (laughs) let's go kick it it takes a lot Um, all right yeah let's go kick it (laughs) see eva where can folks find out more let's start with the just practice collaborative where can folks find out more about them you can go to just-practice.org to find all about just practice collaborative and the cool homies who work there Speaking of uh, cool friends, where can folks find out more about uh, IC and the work that y'all are doing? Go check out interruptingcriminalization.org, and you can always find us on social at interruptcrim. We're at Ergo Radio, as well as at Respair Media, which is our uh, movement media ecosystem hub that we've launched this year. You can find our flagship show, Ergo, A-I-R-G-O, wherever you get your pods. And I think it's time to wrap up this experiment. We will see y'all back in the lab next month. Much love to the people. Peace.